Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, nihao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2023. I am your host, Betsy Olam, and uh, today we're going to go back to Ohio for a manufacturing story. We're going to explore the global oil and gas industry from an insider who knows the ropes. Our guest is Sandy Winans, Global Trade Compliance Manager for Altronic. Sandy has a bachelor's degree with a focus on international business and supply chain from Youngstown State University. She has worked at Altronic since 1990, where she held several positions that led her to her current role. We're going to delve into all of this, but first a word from our sponsor. We are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurant, entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-V-Y, commercial.com, and I'll post it on our website. Now back to the show. Sandy is a member of the Northern Ohio District Export Council, and we appreciate her being with us today. She joins us from Youngstown, Ohio. Hello, Sandy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Betsy. Nice to be here. Oh, it's nice to see you. We we met uh, back in May at the uh, National District Export Council Conference, so that was lucky for me. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the the deck. Uh, but um, first, um, I thought we could start with having you explain a little bit about the history of your company, Altronic. Uh, and, and then let's talk about its place in the oil and gas industry today. Okay. So Altronic has actually been in business since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of an interesting start. It actually started out um, trying to be an engine manufacturer. And some of the early trade shows, um, what they found out is the engine really wasn't taking lead in the market, but the ignition system on the engine had a lot of intention. So okay. the, it was a privately owned company. Um, and at that time, what they decided to do, instead of trying to delve into the engine world, really take a focus more on the ignition for okay. stationary gas engines. So um, 
by 1966, um, Ajax had adopted what we call the Altronic One system. And it was an alternative to standard magnetos. Um, and today we still sell those same ignition systems. However, we've developed a whole lot to them now to where they're now digital and much more current on digital, but that's kind of where it started on the ignition side. Um, in the 70s, they expanded their product line to um, instrumentation and control products. So instead of just doing ignitions, we started developing um, a digital enunciator that would read parameters within an engine and set safety shutdown parameters. And we've involved to full PLC type programs where we have um, very specific digital components that are focused in the oil and gas industry to monitor engines primarily used on the pipeline and oil and gas stations, places like that, some power okay. generation. Um, and what year, and we'll get into the export more later, but when did they begin export? So in the late 70s, early 80s, oh, okay. um, they were setting up an aftermarket distributor chain. And we mm -hmm. actually had a distributor out of Washington State who managed the exports for many years. Yeah. Um, as they continued to progress and international be business became much more dominant in the world, mm -hmm. um, Altronic realized that we were missing some of the market and was not getting the attention through just one U.S. distributor. Right. So it was in 19, I'm sorry, 2001. 2001 is when they actually canceled that distributor. And at that time, I was actually working in production and they posted a position to help develop the international market that I applied for. And fortunately got it because that was my first steps into the international market. Okay. Um, and I worked with a regional manager who was actually an employee of that distributor at that time. And he and I just really started in 2001 um, setting up international distributors globally. So you were on the front end of the export program, would you say? I mean, other than the, the distributor once y'all decided to move away from that single distributor, you were kind of on the front end of what y'all were doing? For the aftermarket, that would be true. We were exporting to OEMs. So we, we had some OEMs throughout Europe and Asia that we were, that we had, were exporting at that time. But for mm -hmm. the aftermarket, we were not exporting. We were selling to a distributor in Washington. So yeah, for the aftermarket, that began our first roles of exporting into the aftermarket world. When you say the aftermarket world, uh, just to be clear for everybody, you mean just through distributors? Correct. How okay. So what? how Altronic finds, distinguishes aftermarket between an OEM. For us, the OEM is an engine manufacturer. So somebody yeah. who's actually building the engine and they're putting the ignition on the engine when they build the engine, that is what, so if Caterpillar is building an engine, Caterpillar is one of our big customers. They would buy the ignition system mm -hmm. off of us and it would just, it would be put on the engine and the whole engine would then be sold. So in the aftermarket, okay. we're then supporting um, upgrades or replacing parts that have gone bad in the aftermarket. So we're not really selling the engine. We're only selling, like I said, a very niche market, the, the ignition and the controls on large stationary gas engines. 
Nice. Okay. Appreciate your, uh, you know, kind of explaining that because, because different manufacturers, you know, approach markets a little differently. So, you know, let's talk a little bit more about your story. Um, did you come to Altronic, you know, after university or, you know, kind of how did, how did you come to Altronic? And then tell us a little bit about some of the different positions you held uh, and, you know, then how you got to your current responsibilities. Sure. So um, long history. I actually started with Altronic in 1990. Um, I was going to college at the time. Um, I was working in manufacturing on an automotive production line when I was going through college. Um, oh, and nice. ironically, um, one of my classmates um, was, we always mostly did nighttime because we were both full-time workers and doing the nighttime college. And yeah. mine was a pretty physical job on the automotive line. So I would come in, I primered cars um, going down an assembly line. So I would come in and I would try to clean up after work, but frequently went straight from the production line to college. So I would have primer. A couple of times <laughs> I would have bruises and he would be like, man, you get beat up at work. You need to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm going to college. <laughs> well, and when ironic... people are impressed, though, it's always <laughs> impressive that when people uh, work their way through college. So Absolutely. I'd... Yeah. No, I was definitely working my way through. And he actually worked at Altronic. Um, he was a software engineer at Altronic. Mm -hmm. And he brought me in an application. And I actually started out at Altronic while I was still in college. And mm -hmm. I started on the production level. Um, my first jobs in the production level was um, building circuit boards, um, one component at a time. They were at that point, Altronic probably had around 75 to 80 employees and was um, very much a small uh, uh, privately owned company. Yeah. Um, as we grew, they actually started automating a lot of the production. And my first production jobs was programming some of the machines because my I was going to college at the time actually for computer science. Um, so yeah. I programmed some of the machines as they started increasing the uh, technology on the production and bringing in machines that could be semi-automated population type things. And I did programming through there. Um, mm -hmm. And I did that through 2001. So I did that for about 11 years. And let, um, and let me just say to listeners, there's no better, there's no better foundation for sales than actually knowing the product by being on the, you know, production line or whatever, being there, you know, in, in the operation, if you can get an operations background, this is my opinion, it's just a great background for sales. So there. Absolutely true. I definitely agree with you on that. It was very instrumental um, in the early stages when I would go. I did mostly on the inside support. So my initial title was um, inside sales manager um, mm -hmm. and was mostly supporting more the international market, not so much on the domestic side that just that stayed under the order processing group. Mm -hmm. um, but when I would go on calls and I, you know, they would ask specific questions on things, it was very valuable to know the product from component level all the way up sure. to building the product and understanding how it was tested, particularly when it's such a technical um, product. It's a very niche market um, sure. and a very specifically designed product. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think um, having hands on for that was very instrumental. Um, so from there, I actually helped develop the market. Um, 2009, okay. we were acquired by a company called Herbiger, and Herbiger. they were located out of Austria. 
and they actually acquired Altronic as a diversification. They were more on the compression side of the oil and gas business, and we were on the engine side of the business. So it was kind of expanding their markets. So um, at that point, we definitely went through a lot of um, transitional phases, sure. becoming part of a much larger company. Um, I, I'm just asking a question as a lay person uh, that doesn't know enough about oil and gas. What is compression? What does that mean versus what y'all do? What I'll try. Okay, so on the compression side, they actually focus, their key component is valves. So they are building the valves that push the gas through the pipeline. Okay. Okay. And an engine runs the compressor. So there's a compressor with the valves that pushes that gas. And the engine is actually the power to the compressor. So we were on the engine side providing the power to the compressors. And so, on pipelines, is the in, can the engine be far away from, you know, I mean, a pipeline can be a long, a long, you know, piece of equipment. So are there engines along the way or is there like one engine and then you have the compressors all the way down the pipeline? The so, engines are married with the compressors. So they actually call it a package and a package consists of a compressor and an, and an engine. So oh. they, they do go hand in hand. So if you have compress, if you're, if you're a, a company who's selling parts to a compressor, you are going to be talking to the same companies when you're selling parts on the engine side of things. I see. All right, let's talk, like, for example, the, the pipeline that starts in Canada and goes down to, isn't there one that goes from Canada to Mexico through the U.S.? Yes, yes. So how far apart are these engine compressor packages? Miles, miles and miles and miles. You, you'll okay. ha they'll have what you call a compressor station, and there'll be mm -hmm. compressor stations along the way, but they are definitely many miles apart. Um, and it can vary. Um, so I yeah. don't want to just throw out one number. It can vary sure, based sure. on the capacity of the pipeline and all those. There's lots of different variations on it. And definitely really not my forte to even give you a rough guess at that. That's okay. <laughs> I ask questions and you don't have to I always have the answer. It's okay. <laughs> I'm a late person, like I said. And are there humans uh, working this along the line, you know, along the pipeline? Or is that normally there's humans at, you know, the headquarters or whatever, and the rest of it is, you know, automated. So compression stations definitely usually have people at the larger compression, compression, uh, compressor stations, okay. but there are kind of what they call booster stations. And those are very remote. And that's oh. really where the internet came into play and a lot of product development learning when you could get out and start to remotely operate um, and that's kind of one of our fortes when it comes to the instrumentation and the control products. We can monitor those engines. And back in the earlier days, our product would shut the engine down, but nobody would really know that until the maintenance person went out and was just doing a check and then they would see the station is down. Now oh, wow. with today's technology and all the Wi-Fi, you yeah. can get signals at a compressor station that's upline or upstream from that area and they know instantly where the problem is and usually our products will even say what the problem is so not only did it shut down but you know particularly maybe one cylinder quit firing or you know there was too much pressure somewhere our devices will actually 
define exactly what the error was and shut the engine down and then send Listen. a message to a local maintenance person so they know exactly where to go. Whereas oh. back in the day before the Wi-Fi days, you would have people that just check those stations on a regular schedule basis. So it really has changed over the last oh, 20 oh, years. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, and um, and so um, this is something we'd love to know more about, how Altronic over the years has contributed to, you know, overall improvements in the oil and gas industry, say, in benefiting the environment. Uh, I think you and I had talked, maybe there was a sustainability aspect to your business. Anyway, I'd love to know more about that. Yes, yeah, so we do have a lot of air fuel ratio control products. Mm -hmm. um, and those really have a niche market within the oil and gas industry itself. It's really to monitor emissions on engines. So if you're in an area, California was really the first that um, started putting out regulations saying you couldn't run engines if they weren't under certain emission guidelines. I so see. our engineering department actually developed what we call an air fuel ratio product. Okay. And it basically helps to monitor exactly what those regulations are. So uh, again, it's very niche type markets. And mm -hmm. if you're say in a third world country that doesn't care about emissions, you're not gonna sell any of that specific product line. It's a big mover in Europe and in, in uh, California where the emissions are much are monitored much closer. Sure. What about Asian markets? Do they um, care about that? <laughs> not too much on the air fuel ratio. There's not yeah. a whole lot of monitoring of emissions throughout Asia, not at this point anyways. Well, I mean, are they even large user, users of natural gas? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, they yeah, they oh. definitely, yeah. We do a lot of business in Africa and in Asia. Um, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Nigeria. Um, those are probably some of our large market areas. Interesting. Um, and a, do all of a lot of those markets that you mentioned, do they have their own uh, natural resources or is uh, most of that they purchase from somewhere else? Uh, no, natural resources there. Okay. So yeah, they, there's a lot of gas in those regions. So that's, yeah. So anywhere mm -hmm. our product is sold, there is gas pumping out of the ground. Generally. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, then it's actually getting the gas, a lot of offshore. Um, Indonesia, Thailand has a lot of offshore drilling and oh. the platforms would have the compressor stations and the engines and things on them that where our products would be part of a large offshore platform. Wow. What about um, the Middle East? What, what is that? What markets are y'all, do y'all work with there? Same thing. It would be the same. Yeah. So we do a lot in Oman. Um, Dubai is kind of a trading hub. So there's not actual production in Dubai, but we do have a um, distribution sales that's supporting different regions in um, yeah. Qatar, Oman, um, even Azerbaijan. There's, you know, so anywhere where there's actually gas that is being produced in those countries, you're going to find the Altronic products. Okay. Okay. I guess um, it's the it's most important that you get to a customer before the pipeline's even built, or do or do they often replace another product with your product on an existing pipeline? Is it both? 
It, it is both. That's a really interesting question. And that's why it's important to be on the OEM side. So if you can get your ignition on the original engine when it goes into the field, then mm -hmm. you have a much higher probability of getting the aftermarket sales because when that goes bad, they're going to want to replace what's on there. So, um, and it is a trick, a little bit of a tricky market sometimes because a lot of our OEM products are proprietary to that OEM. So if we're making okay. an ignition specific for a Yenbacher engine that's built okay. in Europe, um, mm -hmm. we can't sell the Yenbacher ignition. Um, same with yeah. Caterpillar. So now some of the OEM products um, are easier to take off and replace with an aftermarket, but that's really where our distributors come into play. It's not, you can't just take this off and replace it with the exact same part all the time when you're doing upgrades or repairs. So our distributors are very diverse and know the whole engine and usually have maintenance and a lot of complementary products. So they're not selling just our product. They're also selling carburetors. They're selling spark plugs. They're selling conduit. They're selling everything that that engine needs. And that's what we look for in a distributor. What type of distributor is in our market with, uh, with complementary products Right. And our product is just part of that complementary line. Oh, that makes perfect sense. So, um, you know, I would love it now if you could share some of your export-related stories. Uh, I'd love to go ahead and and talk about some of the stories that uh, uh, you think about that kind of explain, you know, your y'all's experience. Yeah, so, so on the export side of things, um, like I said, on the OEM, it's a lot of engineering development and sales development with the larger engine manufacturing companies. Mm -hmm. um, on the aftermarket side, it really is building the relationship with your distributor and making sure you have site-on visits from Altronic who understands the product and understands the advantages. It's and can explain why making an investment to an upgrade is viable and worth the cost. So right. it is very, it's not a, um, this breaks and they call you and they give you a part number and you sell it. You need to go out there and say, yeah, this broke, but this, this product, it's not uncommon for our product to last 20 years before it breaks. So by time mm -hmm. it breaks, there's whole new technology. So the export market is really defined by boots on the ground and partnerships yeah. with our distributors and going out there and saying, yeah, well, you know, now we have this type of ignition and we have these type of controls and they might be a little expensive, but it's going to save you a lot of money because you're not sending people to remote locations unless you really need to send people to those locations. And our distributors yeah. have people in those areas that not only sell the product, but can help support um, on a service basis also. So probably some of our most interesting places on, um, we did a very large offshore project in Gabon. Um, it was probably about a six month project. So while we had maybe three to four shipments only to that area, working mm -hmm. with the distributor on the ground and just, you know, and was doing upgrades for a offshore platform uh -huh. and really expanding the knowledge and, and that's what it takes. Once you get your foot in the door and you, you show the advantages that the product can bring, it's right. a ripple effect through the industry. You know, that, yeah. the, those maintenance people talk to people who are different parts of the region, you know, Chevron's or um, PTT's, a, a big oil company in Thailand. You get it on one engine and you show them the advantages. And then 
the marketing is really word of mouth. It's, it's not that you're going out there knocking door-to-door -door sales. It's word of mouth of the advantages that the product can bring when yeah. it's invested and installed properly. I just Googled, Google mapped Gabon. It's in West Africa. West Africa. So I thought it was, <laughs> but I just want to be sure. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Did you actually go? Uh, were you actually... Did you actually visit? Uh, I did not go to, I have not been to any of the Africa sites. I've been to most of our distributors throughout Asia. Um, uh -huh. So I've been to Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, um, been to Dubai, um, but I am not the maintenance person. So I don't generally right. do the installation areas. My primarily role and going back to the exports is the compliance side of things. So a lot of what I do is go to the distributors and explain the US regulations and explain how when they purchase products from us, um, mm -hmm. you know, under, they have to, we have to know the end user and why do we need to know the end user? And they have to understand, um, you know, taking a order off of a tender board and you don't know where it's ultimately gonna land. We're very strict on that because our products are, re are requested from Iran and we're very, very strict to make sure they don't uh, land there. Yeah. So I do the training more with the administration side into the distributor offices to really set up processes in place where we know the end users, we know the end use, we know exactly the location um, so that we can really manage um, where is our product ultimately gonna land, not only on a compliance yeah. basis, but because it does need support. It's a technical product and they right. need to know that our distributor is aware of that and he's out there supporting it. I would imagine there's a good bit of documentation that that shows the end where the end user is to imagine. Yeah, uh, to for our foreign distributors, um, particularly those in the Middle East Asia, um, we require an end destination with with each purchase order. Now, some of our distributors will hold stock. So if they're holding stock, again, that's kind of my training with them. You know, we obviously if they're buying stock so that they can support engine down scenarios, they're not, they don't know where it's going to go, but they know they have to document that when they sell it out of their stock. And then if I would call them with the serial number five years down the road, they need to tell me where that serial number was installed. Oh, wow. So besides Iran, what are some of the major uh, countries where we're, you know, we're not allowed to sell? Type of so product. Iran is a big one um, yeah. that that has a lot of oil and gas there. And we obviously are hands off there um, and don't touch them very specifically. Um, Syria, while it's not a complete embargo now, is a very difficult country to do business in. And it was a complete embargo for quite some time. That was actually an interesting story. We were doing a large project there when it went on the embargo listing the first time. Oh, wow. And we were in the middle of an installation and had not completed all of our shipments. Oh. And they put it on an embargo and they needed what we had left to ship to finish the projects that were going on. And we worked, that's actually how I became affiliated with the uh, district export councils. I worked with our local commerce department yeah. saying, how can I do this legally? How can I make sure, what do I need documented here? And they walked us through the de minimis roles. So like I said, our product's part of the engine. And it's a very small part. So we were way under the 10% of the engine. So we were able to sell our products to the 
to the engine manufacturers that were allowed to legally take the product, take the engine into, into the system. But we had a lot of documentation there to show who we were selling it to, what engine it was going on, and the whole supply chain, even outside of our product line at that point, because we were using the um, the minimus regulations at that time. Oh, wow. How interesting. What year was that uh, when the first embargo? Oh, let me think about that one. I want to say maybe 2003, 2004. Well, I'm trying to think what was happening then that brought about that embargo. Gaddafi. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, I got you. I got you. Um, so it's crazy how that works. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So no, that's we have. Um, we also do what we call export notifications when we know Syria is another really difficult area. Um. Uh, that where we had after that, we would have a lot of requests for products that didn't fall under the de minimis. It was strictly replacements. But because it's such a niche market, there's very specific part numbers that went on those engines. So when I would see an inquiry from an exporter come up for that engine, mm -hmm. for that part number, I would know right away that's going to Syria. And I would go back to them and say, no, we cannot sell that to you. Okay. You might be shipping it to Dubai, but it's ultimately going to land in an embargoed area. So that, that's a big part of the compliance side of things is making sure you know end use and end users and you're monitoring all the quote requests and working with the distributors and alerting them saying, hey, these parts, you know, whether it's because it's a contractual sale that we're trying to protect or whether it's a compliance issue, it could be one or the other. And it really goes hand in hand, knowing your market, knowing your product, knowing yeah. your customers and knowing your end users. Wow, I can see how important your job is in export because uh, a company, if, if a company, you know, inadvertently uh, sold, you know, through a distributor to Syria, you could still get in trouble, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I go to my distributor meetings and I meet with my distributors and I explain to them why I need to know serial numbers, I tell them right up front, if a serial number comes up, and the Bureau of Industry and Security comes knocking on my door, I am sending them to you. I am not protecting you. You need to be my partner and you need to be honest in this because yeah. if I find out you're not, I'm turning you into the government because you're not going to take my company down. And right. we're very, very strict with our distributor. And we have a very small distributor market because we are yeah. so strict with that. Right. Um, and because it's the best way to manage it. I mean, I, you know, we definitely wouldn't be wanting to sell our products on Amazon or some web interface that you had no control over who's buying. Right. We're, it's a very, very tightly monitored system. Right. And who is the government? What is the government agency again that uh, oversees that, you know, aspect? So most of our products are just general commodities. They're mm -hmm. not, we have a few things that fall into low range of dual use but we definitely do not have any ITAR. So ours is managed by the Bureau of Industry and Security. And then of course for Treasury OFAC. So those are the two dominant departments that our compliance um, is working with is the BIS and the OFAC. Um, we do not have ITAR products. We don't work in military. We very specifically, if it's a military application, which mm -hmm. it could be in some cases because we do some power generation, we decline military applications because we just really, it's not our forte and we don't yeah. have the um, processes in place to really right. work under the ITAR. So we make sure we stay in the general commodities, oil and gas, um, and where our product line was really designed for. 
Okay. Okay. BIS, is that under commerce? Yes. Yeah. Bureau of Industry and Security is the federal government that manages. They work very close with um, Customs Border Patrol and Mm -hmm. they're under that, actually under um, Homeland Security. Um, After 9-11, Homeland Security put the umbrella over all of those government agencies that communicate together. So the Homeland Security would actually even entail ITAR, but we specifically work more with BIS, the Commerce Department, and OFAC. Makes perfect sense. So um, I know that you're really involved. We're we're changing subjects a little bit here. I know you're really involved in your DEC, your District Expert Council. Tell me about uh, your involvement, some of the work you do uh, with your DEC. So some of the, one of the main things I like to do, Altronics in Northeast Ohio. So we're about an hour from Cleveland and an hour from Pittsburgh, right in the center. So we're not in a large city, but we do have Youngstown State University close to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I frequently will support if they are doing any type of, um, through their business school, if they're doing any programs that are trying to help facilitate international trade in the Youngstown Mahoning Valley region. I, mm-hmm. I try to be involved in those. Um, a couple times a year, I'll go and talk to students. One of my most favorite things to do oh. is really go in and talk to students and explain to them some job opportunities that they may never have thought of. I mean, most right. people don't realize there's export controls and compliance is really something that was always regulated, but not tightly enforced until after 9-11. So while we are... 20 years away from that now, yeah. it took a good 10 years to really put those regulations in place. Um, so you don't have uh, people that, you know, have been doing this for, I came into international sales right at 2001, right when 9-11 happened. Oh, um, so that's when we started developing our international market was in 2001. And I think it was a blessing for me. It was perfect timing because as regulations started to really become evolving and stricter and changing, I didn't know the old ways of doing anything. I came through the door right at that time when it was, and that's how I got involved with the Commerce Department. That's when we were doing our Syria project. And I started realizing how the regulations are made, um, why the regulations are made. I have a son in the military, so I understand the whole dual use. You don't want something getting into terrorism that isn't really meant for that, but could hurt our military people out there. So I really have a large respect for the whole dual use understanding. Mm -hmm. And I love encouraging kids, you know, whether you're in engineering and you want to go on the development side, but understand the international aspects, understand that there's a lot of administrative things that require a diverse background to really understand the whole supply chain level. I think that is fantastic that you as part of the deck are, are reaching out to the students. And uh, I love that idea. So I'm glad we can share that because I know a lot of deck members listen to this podcast. So that is so cool and really, yeah. really good work. Um, yeah. Thank so you. I'd also <laughs> promote with the, I'd also promote the interns too. So yeah, I'll give a, a yeah. plug for hiring your, you know, a lot of the, um, I know we have um, an intern export program that is actually funded through the state of Ohio to hire uh, internships and you can get reimbursements from the state of Ohio to fund part of that internship where they're promoting international business. 
So that's that's another interesting aspect that I would encourage people, particularly in Ohio, to look into. I don't know if other states have that same program or not, but that's also, it's called the Ohio Import-Export Program, and yeah. it's through your local universities. No, that's really great because I know there's, you know, lots of international business students and, you know, a lot of schools, they don't have the resources to go to someone at their school and say, where can I get an internship in, in export? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, there needs to be more. There needs yeah. to be more of that, you know, helping these young people, you know, guide them into export, which is so good for the economy. So um, I'm glad we're talking about that. I appreciate that. So so lastly, what I like to ask my guests from all over the country, uh, let's talk about Youngstown for just a minute. Um, when visitors come to your area, what should they see as, as tourists? You know, I mean, maybe they come on business, but, you know, they're going to want to see some things. So what's what's in that area that people should see? Interesting question. Um, Youngstown is a old steel mill area. So yeah. when the steel mills went down, it became a very, very depressed area. Yeah. Um, and it is now just really building back. I mean, I think that the Youngstown city region has made great strides in the last 10 years yeah. to really overcome the steel mill mentality of a rundown city. Yeah. Um, we, we have, the university has a lot of um, things that go on there with sports and those type of things. Um, mm -hmm. We did just open up a, Youngstown opened a convention center where they're starting to host some concerts and events down at, it's called the Cavelli Center. So there's some events going on at the Cavelli Center. Nice. Um, but because we're so centrally located to Pittsburgh and Cleveland and yeah. even Niagara Falls, so when we have a lot of foreign people come in, we often kind of, um, Niagara Falls, the, the U.S. side of Niagara Falls is only it's about Buffalo. a three hour drive. Yeah, that's so, Buffalo, right? Yes, yeah. yeah so yeah. it's, um, oh. so yeah, so frequently we will, and even when we host events, a lot of times we will host our events either in Cleveland or Pittsburgh, or we have mm -hmm. the entertainment day doing yeah. a tour up into those areas because there is not a whole, whole lot of tourism per se in Youngstown, but we're very centrally located to where within an hour's drive, oh, you okay. can do a lot of good things. Um, cool. And then, like I said, three hours drive, you're in Niagara Falls. So we really, we utilize our surrounding areas more than we utilize our city itself. Yeah. Well, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's cool. Well, well wonderful. Well, I think we covered a lot today and I just really enjoyed this discussion so much. I'm I'm really grateful to you, Sandy, for, for joining us. Thank you. It was my privilege. I'm happy you asked. <laughs> well, great. And so let me just say to our listeners, uh, we can have a great conversation going about this episode and, you know, general discussions about exporting. So please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com where all of our current and past podcasts are available. I'll be posting, you know, web information about Altronic on that episode page uh, also. And you can ask questions or post comments there. So we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we really are creating a community of exporters here. So please let your voice be heard. 
So anyway, thanks again, Sandy, and to all of our listeners. This was a really fun discussion. Thank you, Betsy. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 